Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to begin a new series of messages today that we're calling Essential. All right? And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, that word is a word that we have come to hear and become familiar with a lot in the last six to seven months, right? So when all of the pandemic began to hit and people were told to stay at home, shelter in place, all those orders kind of came out, the, the buzzword was there was everybody had to shelter in place except for essential workers, right? Essential workers, essential businesses were still open. Um, we as a church were deemed essential. That was one of the designations that we got. And so that meant that we kept some sort of, of uh, presence going. I mean, we, we were online, but that mean we could have people in the building to go online and do those kind of things, especially during those days when it was really kind of shelter-in-place time. And then we've kind of gradually come back and have different kind of rules because of essential. But essentially... There it is. Essentially, essential workers were people that um, had something to do with with medical care in the beginning or law enforcement or some sort of city services, things that had to go on, distribution, grocery workers, people that were essential to our society. One of, there were memes around and things on Facebook about how interesting it was that a lot of our essential jobs were jobs that aren't always thought of in the highest regard. Uh, but during this pandemic, it became very apparent that they were essential to our way of life. And so families had to figure out what was essential to them, what was essential to um, their livelihood, that families were sheltering in place, and there were many people that were losing jobs, and suddenly financially you have to decide what's essential. You have to decide what's essential in travel, what's essential in where you're going, in shopping, and learn new ways to do things, and find out what do we have to have. That's what led, apparently, to the crisis of toilet paper that was around, because we all deem that essential. Amen? All right, all right. So we were doing all that, all right? And so we're talking over the next few weeks about what does it mean for us as a church? What's essential for us? And just to be honest with you, the pandemic uh, is something that has impacted every level of our society, every aspect of our society, and churches are not immune to that. One of the questions that churches have had to ask, one of the questions that we have had to ask, one of the questions that your pastor have had to ask, okay, what are essential elements of what we do? What do we have to keep doing? Even if everything else around us is kind of stopping. Right. There are things that we have to be a part of regardless of what the pandemic is doing. And while it seems... Like it seems sometimes, right, that the world is shut down and it's easy for us to just pull back and to, to, to hibernate in the midst of that. It doesn't change whatever's going on in our world, doesn't change the calling of God upon his people to do his work. Amen. And so we want to talk about what is it that is essential and a new reality that's coming. And, and listen, there will be a time and people say things like the world will never be the same again. And there may be portions of that true, but I read some other articles this week that talked about the fact that the lessons that we learned in 1918 flu, we did not apply very well in this one because nobody was really alive when that happened back then. And so eventually, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, we may look back on this and go, man, you remember that two year period, that six month period, that year and a half when it was 
They're like the things we tell the grandkids about, right? Well, back in my day, you wouldn't believe what we had to do. But the near term, there are going to be impacts on lots of levels of society, including the church. Right now, according to statistics, and there are good reasons for this, or many of you that are watching at home right now, because that's what you need to be doing. That's the recommendation of your doctor or your health or what's best for you, or you don't feel comfortable, and that, that's, we completely understand that. But the, all the statistics out there show that right now, church attendance in person is somewhere between 30 to 40% of what it was pre-pandemic. When you add online, it is somewhere around 60 to 70% of what it was before the pandemic. And there are people that studying these trends and looking at this and looking at statistics, and I don't do all that, but I read some of their stuff that say that the estimate right now is 20 to 25% of people will never come back. Now, some of that's because, let's just be real honest about this. We're in a series called Essential. We're going to talk about what's essential for the church. Some of that's because people have determined, as they've been away from church for a little bit, that for them, church is not essential. Now, I cannot imagine making that choice for a number of reasons, and I hope that as we think about this through the lens of what God would call us to do, none of us in this room, none of us watching at home, would come to the conclusion that church is non-essential, but many people have. And if we are going to have the impact that we need to have in the coming years, the coming months, we have to focus again on what it is that we are called to be and to do. And so one reason that I wanted to do this series, felt God leading us through this series, is to just to remind us of what's essential. That word's been out there. Things are talking about what's essential for this business or for your family or for your profession or for your recreation or your vac- like what's essential. And I want to talk about that. But the second reason is, is because it's so easy in church or in life to lose our focus on what really matters. I read this week a story about an organization that was started in London in 1844. Now, um, I, I don't remember London in 1844. Maybe somebody here does. I don't, probably not, right? But apparently, the living conditions in London were terrible. Industrial Revolution was kind of beginning. People were moving to the city. Young men especially were moving to the city. They were living in terrible places. They were working terrible conditions, working all day, having all of this happening around them. And a a, a farmer-turned-shopkeeper named George Williams got together with 11 of his friends and says, we have to provide a place for young men to get Christian encouragement and education while they're moving to the city. And so they started the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. This is long before a song about it came out, all right? And the intention of the YMCA when it was started in 1844 in London was to be a spiritual refuge, a place of Bible studies and prayer that helped young men who were moving to London connect with the Lord and find their purpose through Scripture. I was reading this story in a a commentary by a guy named Matt Carter, who's the pastor of a church in Texas called Austin Stone. And he said that it's a church that they planted in, in Texas and he said, I was in Texas, and we were planning a church. We were getting ready to plant a church. And 
We went to different places, and he said one of the places that we targeted to, hey, let's go meet and see if we can meet there, was the YMCA in town. He said, so I went to the YMCA in town, and I explained to them what I wanted to do and wanted to use their facility on a Sunday morning for a worship service. And the person at the, that he talked to, the person that was with that decision at that particular YMCA says, oh, I don't think we can do anything with churches or religious organizations. Now, now that's a long time, right, from 1844 to today. But you see how it can easily, focus can shift. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about what's essential for us as a church. And by just the fact that the church, as I said earlier, is made up of the people of God. If this is what's essential for the church, this is what's essential for you. We're going to use as kind of a foundational element our church purpose statement. Because I think it encapsulates what's essential in our church, in our lives. And that is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. If you're new here, you're visiting here, that's what we're about. It's on our wall out there. That's what we want to be about. That's what we aspire to be about. We don't always hit it perfectly, but that's our aspiration. That's our desire, to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to tackle the first of the essential elements of that that are the most important. John chapter 3. Now let me ask you a quick question, alright? When I say turn to John chapter 3 and I tell you that we're going to talk about the essentials of the Christian faith, what immediately do you think we're going to talk about? We are not talking about John 3.16 today. But that would be a good place to, like that, I'm just thinking that would probably be a good place to do this. But we're not. Alright? In fact, we're going to talk about one of the least talked about passages of Scripture in John. Because it's sandwiched between John 3, that begins in chapter, in verse 1 and goes all the way down through the story of Nicodemus. And on the other end of it, it's sandwiched in between John chapter 4 which if you're familiar with the book of John, is another story that's told a lot. It's the Samaritan woman at the well and what worship is about. And we could also spend time, and I have, talking about something we're going to talk about today in John chapter 4, and we'll reference it. But sandwiched in between John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus, and John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, is the story of John the Baptist and his followers. Now, quick, uh, quick, you know, thought process here. Who's John the Baptist? By the way, he wasn't the first Southern Baptist, just so you know, all right? Although there are Southern Baptists that try to trace the lineage all the way back, all right? John the Baptizer, right, was somebody that was in Jesus' family, right, cousin of Jesus. He was... Uh, somebody that was going around the countryside. He was preaching uh, repentance. He was baptizing people. He actually baptized Jesus. We're told about that, right? Puts Jesus in, baptizes him. Jesus comes out. The Spirit descends. So we know a little bit about his ministry. He also was a little bit weird. Strange, right? One uh, great lyricist by the name of Toby McKeon once said this about him. There was a man from the desert with gnats in his hair. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locust he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this 
Jesus freak. Amen. Y'all don't know DC talk? That's good stuff right there, right? Maybe the first time I've ever quoted Toby Mac in my sermon. But it's true there, right? He was a guy that lived in the desert. He ate locusts. He'd taken the Nazarite vow. He didn't shave. He, didn't, he, he wore animal skins. He was the guy that walked into town. Everybody's like, what? Like, steer clear of this guy. And yet his message was so profound that people were coming to him. And we pick up the story in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. It tells a little bit about Jesus, but then it's really going to be a discussion about John the Baptist in the midst of this. So John chapter 3, verse 22 says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. Now, now by the way, John is the only, the only of the four Gospels that mentions Jesus baptizing, but he doesn't actually say Jesus baptized. It's that it, it later in chapter 4 we'll see that Jesus' disciples were baptizing. So this message of repentance, um, there were people that would go around and talk about ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial washing. We'll find out in a minute there were people that were upset with the way John was doing it. And so Jesus was there, and so Jesus' ministry is beginning to grow. Verse 33. John, that's John the Baptist, was also baptizing in Anim, near Salim. Nobody really knows where that is. There's two or three guesses, but that's kind of unimportant for the point. There were plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized. So you've got Jesus doing it. You've got John doing it. Things are going well. Now, verse 24 is kind of a verse just to give us an understanding that this is before any of the synoptic gospels tell us about the ministry of Jesus. This is early, early in the ministry of Jesus. And it says John had not yet been thrown in prison. John was arrested for his strange behavior. He was killed because of his faithfulness to God. And his head was served on a platter in the midst of that. Verse 25, a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So we don't know exactly what this dispute is. We don't know what it's about. We don't necessarily think it's about Jesus. We think this is more about the traditions of Jewish purification rites and washing and taking care of that and how John viewed baptism and baptism of repentance and what that meant. So then we get to verse 26. This is what's interesting because we don't think that dispute between The Jew and John's disciples was about Jesus, but they turn it into that. Verse 26, so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and the one who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, a couple of things about their statement here. First of all, notice they don't even call him by name. Right? They don't say, hey, you know Jesus? Like, you remember Jesus? Like, they, that was kind of a big moment. Like, you realize people are following him now. They don't even recognize my name. And part of that's because we need to understand there is this real, there is this real kind of affection, you can tell, and devotion to their rabbi. In fact, they use the phrase rabbi here, which is the phrase that would be used of Jesus, and it was appropriate because he was their teacher. He was the one that was instructing them. They had given their lives. They had left their lives. We've talked about this before, that when you had a rabbi that you were chosen, you would go and you would choose a rabbi and you would follow them. You would walk in their shoes for years and you were considered their student and it was a relationship that was near and dear to your heart, almost like a parent. And so they had devoted their lives to John. 
they had left their lives for John and they were saying, John, that other guy, the other guy, you know, the one that's that's competing with us, the one that's down the road from us, the, the one that you saw across the way, like that guy. And notice that it was very clear in that initial encounter with Jesus and John the Baptist that John the Baptist was deferring to him, that he was saying, listen, this is the greater one. I am not even able to latch his sandals. I'm not able to do that. And yet they have not given that over. They're like, oh, that's just false modesty, John. You're the greatest. You're the best. Hey, John, just a quick question. The one you testified about, the one that you saw across the Jordan, is doing the same thing you're doing. And now, and this is how things happen sometimes, everyone is going to him. Now, first of all, we know that's not exactly true, right? How do we know that? Because verse 23 says people were coming to him to be baptized. That's John the Baptist. And yet, these... Followers of John the Baptist exaggerate. You know how it does that. Like everybody's going to this new place or everybody's doing this. Or sometimes you hear from your teenagers, dad, everybody or your children. Well, everyone has. Does everyone? Is everybody really every single person? And that's the way his disciples are like, John, what's going on? And you have this moment when John the Baptist is confronted by his own followers who love him dearly and will do anything for him. And he has the opportunity to say, you're right, you're right, people are going to Jesus, that'll just fade out, don't worry, they'll come back to me, it's okay. But that's not what John does. And in the course of the next few verses, he gives us an amazing picture of what all ministry should be about. And I don't mean that in the sense of professional ministry, full-time ministry. I'm talking about all service to God should be about. So they lay that before him. What do we do? This guy, everyone's going to him. Verse 27, John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So the first thing he says is, Listen, we're working for the same God. The guy crossed the river, the Jordan River, the guy that I spoke about, Jesus, and I are working on the same team for the same God, and nobody has anything that is not first established and given them to by God. And so it is the sovereignty of God that is overseeing my ministry. I am attempting to do something for the glory of God alone, and it is only because of what He has given me that I am able to do that. And so the first realization that He comes to here, that He says before these people is, what you are saying is that I'm more gifted or talented or able to do more than Jesus because of your affection for me and your desire for me but what you must understand is I have nothing on my own everything I have has been given to me by God every opportunity I have has been given to me by God every gift and talent I have has been given to me by our God and the point that we have for us as a church when we think about what's essential is the first place that we have to put ourselves in is to realize that this church is not here because a bunch of people got together and decided to do something good this church is here because God in his infinite wisdom and timing decided that this group of people that started this church should get together in order to take the gospel to the nations and to Goodlettsville, Tennessee and the surrounding area. And as that has developed over time, it is still a God-given opportunity that we have to do that. And so it's not because any of us are particularly skilled. 
It's not because any of us have great ideas and an entrepreneurial spirit. It's because the sovereignty of God has allowed us to be fortunate enough to be in a place where we can do the ministry and the work of God. It is a privilege to be a church. And anytime we begin to take for granted the privilege that it is, we are losing sight of who we are. So first of all, he says, it's a privilege. God gave me this. And then he tells them in verse 28, and I know my place. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. He says, I don't know who you think I am, but I am not the one that is anointed. I am not the Messiah. Another way of saying that is exactly what I said a moment ago. He knew his place in ministry, and his place in ministry was not to be the one that people revered, but to point people the one that was worthy of being worshipped. As a church, that's our position as well. I mean, obviously, I want to be a great church. I want to do things well. I want to, I want to lead you in a way that glorifies God and that it's done and with excellence. But at the end of the day, in the scope of eternity, I really don't care if people say, man, that's a great church, as much as if they say, man, they serve a great God. And this is something that plagues the American church because we have adopted a spirit of business within our churches that makes us think about it in a way where it's competitive with other places of worship, it's competitive with other groups of people, and we no longer sense the fact that our role, we find our role, our point in the midst of this, to point people to God, to glorify Him, and then we serve our role. And don't worry about everybody else's. John said, I'm not the Messiah. I don't know what you think it is, guys. I've never told you I'm the Messiah. Now, I know that I may have said, I'm not the Messiah. He's greater than me. And in the background, you may all have talked and was like, no, no, John's it. But I've never said anything to you guys that would make you think that's who I am. I know my role and my place. And it is not as the Messiah, but as a servant of the one who is to come. And then he talks about, and this kind of this strange little parable in here. In verses 28 and 29, that gives us the idea that there is joy in serving the Lord. It's a privilege to serve the Lord. It's important to know our place in serving the Lord. And then in verse 28 and 29, he says, You yourselves can testify, I'm not the Messiah. I told him that. Verse 29, Who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. What he says here is, listen, my job is to introduce the bride to the groom. Now, throughout Scripture, there is this picture of the relationship between God as the groom and the people of God as his bride. And he says, my job is to make sure the bride, the people to whom God has come, and what is happening in the Gospels is we're realizing that the Gospel is being expanded beyond just the normal group of people in the Israel, in the Jewish faith. It is being expanded to the Gentiles. And the Samaritans is going to happen in chapter 4. It's being expanded. And John says, my job is to introduce the groom to the bride and then step out of the way. 
My job is to let people know who God is, what he's about, and then remove himself. And he says, once that happens, I am joyful to be a part. He uses kind of the idea of the best man in our society. Where the best man stands beside the groom, the best man often gives a a speech about the bride and groom. The best man helps to plan from the groom's side all that's going to go on in the wedding, whatever 0.5% the groom is in charge of for the wedding. And then he stands beside him and out of the way. And the focus, nobody at a wedding should go, man, I'll tell you who was really good at that wedding during the wedding ceremony, the best man. Like the way he stood, it was awesome, right? Like the focus is on the bride and the groom. And he says, my job is to make the introduction and step out of the way. There's a humility in John in this moment. Now we're going to see that in spades and big time in just a moment. But the idea here is that he is literally saying, I'm just going to let people know who he is and I'm going to go off the scene. And then he gives the purpose of his life and the purpose of ours in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. The first essential that we have to have if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be that must stay and be maintained no matter what the circumstances around us are raging is that we must be about and for the purpose of glorifying God. Bringing honor to His name If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you look from the beginning to the end. You begin in Genesis, where they violate that by going against what he has called them to do, all the way to the end of Revelation, where it is restored. And there are millions, billions from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne. The language of Scripture is a language of worship, of celebrating the goodness and the greatness of God. When you think about the Ten Commandments, right? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. There's an exclusive relationship there. In fact, we we were studying these on Wednesday night. And when we studied that, I was reminded of the fact that that's not really what it says. It doesn't say you don't have any other gods before me. It says you should have no other gods before my face. And it's the language, literally, of an intimate relationship like a marriage, like Jesus and God will use throughout Scripture to describe his relationship with his people. And he says it is a one and only only relationship don't have anybody else in the room and his description of the ten commandments particularly that first commandment kevin de young who's the book we're reading as we walk through wednesday night says that marriage is the implied picture of the first commandment and you cannot have a both and marriage with your spouse amen you can't say you know honey i really love you and there's this other woman that i really love too And we like just to coexist all together. Kevin DeYoung in that moment says that that marriage relationship, if it's healthy, will not last very long through that. It would not be healthy by the evidence that that would be accepted. And he said in a similar way, the fault with God's people has always been and. God, we're going to worship you and I'm going to make sure I'm taken care of. And I'm going to cover all my bases in this area. 
The rest of the Ten Commandments, by the way, the next three are all about how we worship the Lord only. We don't have any idols before Him. We don't take His name in vain. We make sure that we... Um, that we set aside a time both to rest but also to give worship and honor and glory to our God. And then the last six of them are about how we honor God, how we worship God, how we live for God in our relationships. You go to the New, command, the New Testament and Jesus asks, what is the greatest commandment and how does he respond? The greatest is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. All the rest hang upon that and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first essential that we have is the first statement of our purpose statement, which is we exist to glorify God. John said it this way. He must increase and we must decrease. Everything that we should be about should run through the lens of, is this bring glory and honor to our God? So how do we do that? How do we glorify God as a church? Well, the first and most visible way we do that is corporate worship. What we do right now on Sunday morning. What we are doing in this place. What we're doing online. And listen, this is a weird moment in the history of the church when almost as many people are worshiping in the comfort of their home through technology as they are in an actual worship facility. And yet there is something about coming together as God's people across the globe that when we gather that we are to worship God wholeheartedly, without distraction, without agenda, without judgment. We are to set aside our desires, our personal preferences, our wants, our anything, and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. This is one of those elements of the church, and there are lots of elements of the church, and we'll talk about these over the next few weeks, that sometimes get placed into church and are good things, traditions and good ideas and things that we're incorporating, that when we bear down at the bottom of it, if it's not serving the essential purposes of the church, then we have to ask the question of why it's there. And this is one of those things that has happened in worship services across the country. It doesn't matter if you're a part of a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, that we put things into our worship services sometimes and they are no longer part of us actually glorifying God they're part of us giving homage to a tradition or to a person that was there or to something that used to happen and as a result it is not part of our experience of worshiping God and if that's true then we have to reevaluate its effectiveness in the same way, sometimes we try to do new stuff and try new, new ways and figure out a way to do this or some way to do that or figure out something new to add. And in the moment of all of that, we have to evaluate just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. And we have to ask the question, is this actually giving us an opportunity to bring glory to our God? Now listen, I want to say real clearly here, I'm not talking about things that you like or don't like. What I'm asking the question is, is what we're doing on Sunday morning glorifying to God from the pit of our stomach, from the depths of our heart, from everything we are? Because the reality is, if you are coming with the mindset to worship the Father, if you're coming with the mindset to give Him everything you are in this place, at this moment, for His glory, then it really won't matter 
what all is transpiring in the midst of that, as long as it is biblically based and it is theologically correct, you ought to be able to worship through whatever song is being sung that is that, through whatever message is being preached through what is that, through whatever prayer time is given in those moments. If they are biblically based and theologically correct and honoring to God, then you ought to be able to jump right in and join with it. Whether it's new or old or yesterday or next year or last decade or 50 years ago or 100. Because you come into this place not to get ready to worship. You come in this place to express what's already been happening in your life for the last week. And just to speak, just kind of frankly, it's not my responsibility It's not our worship team's responsibility to prime the pump for worship every week, to conjure up worship every week. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to lead in a way and to bring things into this place that you who have come prepared with your hearts dedicated to the Lord, ready to sing praises, ready to hear from His Word, ready to pray out and cry out to His name, that you who have spent time preparing and coming into this place for what God is going to do in the midst of this, that we give you the avenue and the runway to get to that place where you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth from the overflow of your own life. And as a church, to provide the opportunity to do that. But that's not the only way we as a church glorify God. I want to tell you, the next two weeks we're going to talk about specific ways we glorify God. So I'm not going to go into those today. And they're part of our our, our statement of faith, our purpose statement. But the other way that we glorify God as a church and as individuals is simply that we are obedient to Him. Jesus, the one who said that the... Number one commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and your soul and all your strength. Would later say, if you love me, you will do what? Follow my commandments. Now I want you to hear this real clearly because it is important and it is the basis of our faith. We do not obey God's commandments to earn his love for us. We obey God's commandments because he's already shown his love for us. Our top priority is the glorification of God, and that comes through an obedient lifestyle. It means in our church that every decision we make needs to be put against the lens of, is this glorifying to God? Every committee that we have needs to be focused on what is right for the glory of God. Every meeting that we have, every business, we have a business meeting next uh, Sunday night. Through the lens it should be seen of, is this what is glorifying to God? That's what's best for me or for my group or the people that I'm a part of. What is best for the glory of God? Every financial decision, every staff member has to be committed to doing what is best for the glory of God. Every member of this church has to be committed to what is good for the glory and the worship of our God. And we do that by following His will. Isaiah 26, 8. Each week I'm going to give you a verse to memorize. They're all three verses that you should know probably. If you've been around here at all in the last 13 plus years when I've been your pastor, this particular verse you have heard again and again and again and again. 
It is my life verse. It is Isaiah 26, 8. But it says, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you. And I want to focus on that first part just for a moment because what it says is that while we wait, waiting in the, in the Bible is never a passive thing. It's something that you are actively a part of. You are seeking the Lord. You are doing what the Lord has called you to do. In fact, it says here, walking in your way. So, Lord, as we wait for you, we're going to walk in your ways. We're going to do what you called us to do. It was a, an idiom in their day for doing the will of God, being obedient to what he has already expressed because he has expressed that in his word. And so, yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, we wait for you. Why? Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. And if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, then we must be obedient to what he's already said for us to do. Already revealed in his word. And so we will not compromise on things where the word of God is clear. We will not fail to live by the spirit of the word of God and the way in which we interact with people that God loves and cares about. We will live both love and truth. Chapter 4 of the book of John, Spirit and Truth, where it says in there that we are to worship God, yes, in the emotional side of who we are, but based on the truth of who He is. We are to love people, yes, and emotionally as God has called us to, because God loves each individual, but we also speak truth in that moment, because to speak untruth or not to give them the truth of God is unkind to them. And we live it out ourselves. That means that for the church to be what the church has called us to be, we must live with personal holiness, dedicated to the Lord, not to earn His favor, but because He has already given it. In Scripture, instruction always follows salvation, not the other way around. And so here's my question for you today. Is the top priority you have in your life glorifying God with everything you are? Is that the priority that you have for the way that you are living? If not, what would it take for your life to line up with that? What would it take? Are there habits that you need to get rid of? Are there um, relationships that you need to mend? Are there relationships that you need to change the understanding of what's going on there? Are there places that you need to stop going to? Are there places you need to start going to? Are there studies that you need to do? Like, what does it look like for your life? The conversations that you need to have. What needs to change in your life for God's name and God's renown to be the priority, the desire of your souls? And then how can you be part of helping our church make that our number one essential? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I uh, admit today that it's so difficult, so difficult to encapsulate the importance of a topic like today in 30 to 45 minutes. Lord, it is the driving factor of our lives, or at least it should be. Lord, I'm thankful that you are patient with us. Lord, I pray that we will be a people that will live our lives to bring you glory. That when we gather together on Sunday morning, that it will be only about you and your glory. It will be only about what you desire 
for us as a people and as individuals. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be lives of obedience, that give honor and glory to your name because we are living as you have called us to live. And I just pray, Lord, that you would truly make your name and your renown the desire of my soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.